Welcome to this week's episode of the Learning Curve podcast. I'm Carrie McDonald, Senior Education Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and guest co-host this week of the Learning Curve podcast, along with Alicia Thomas Cromarty. Hi, Alicia. Hello, Carrie. It's so nice to be co-hosting with you. It's so good to be coasting with you as well. We were both co-hosts over the last couple of weeks as Kara Kendall continues to be on vacation. So it's nice that we are able to have a chance to be together to lead yes. today's uh, today's program. I'm excited. Yeah, and we have a, a wonderful guest. I'm really looking forward to talking with Julie Young later in the podcast. She is the CEO of the... ASU, Arizona State University Prep Digital High School, an online high school that's free for young people in Arizona to attend, but also has a lot of -of out-of-state students as well who participate in online learning. And of course, Julie was the uh, president and CEO of the Florida Virtual School, which was the world's first statewide virtual school. Uh, And so really, really, really looking forward to hearing her thoughts and her experiences on online education and the, and the future of virtual learning. So that's yeah. coming up. But before, I've got questions. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Me too. But before we get to that, we have, you know, stories of the week, commentary of the week. But Alicia, I just uh, love again for listeners, you know, who didn't hear you co-host a couple of weeks ago to share a little bit more about your background. You were a state legislator in Georgia for 12 years. Yes. You're an educator, an education reformer. And now you've switched over to empowering people through this amazing podcast that you've recently launched. And wonder if you can share a little bit about your pathway. Yes. Well, thank you. I would like to say uh, I'm a recovering state legislator. Yes. After 12 years and spent most of that time on the front lines uh, during, you know, some of our, I think our most innovative times, but also the, the biggest fights that we've had in the last decade Um, when we talk about education issues. So definitely parent choice was a big thing for me. Uh, Teacher quality, teacher evaluations, uh, common core. I I don't know if you're still allowed to even use those two words (laughs) together. I still, you know, am suffering from some of those wounds, Um, but very proud of the work seriously that we did uh, in my 12 years in the legislature. Um, In fact, it was funny. I was, uh, there was a post on Facebook today one of the uh, ed reform groups was asking for parents who have been able to navigate what is called House Bill 251. It's the law that I passed in 2009 to allow intra-district transfers, um, you know, within the school district. And I was so excited when I saw the question, because if you know politics, you know, passing bills like that, that are, you know, considered pretty controversial, even though we're just talking about public school choice, you go through so much to get a law passed. In this case, literally, this bill passed at 11.59 p.m., mm. the last day of session in 2009. Um, so to, I can't wait to hear the stories from parents um, who, yes, are navigating you know, an imperfect system, imperfect law, but because of the work um, that I and so many other people have done, um, you know, kids have choice. And so that's the work that I did for 12 years Um, And many people who followed any of that work might have recognized my old last name, which is Morgan. So let me just say that Alicia Thomas Morgan, people probably recognize more than Cromartie. Um, And so, yes, I did that. And then I went through the Broad Superintendents Academy and became a superintendent. Mm. Uh, So I ran a charter school network for three years, got some phenomenal results for kids, uh, and then tried to get into the traditional space. And that was fun, right? Trying to be a, a square peg in a round hole. <laughs> um, and so it's been an interesting journey now. I'm using my leadership experience, my management experience um, to train other leaders who are elected officials, but also women in leadership positions. Um, and then I also am a life coach. So I do life coaching and uh, public speaking now, but I on the coaching piece, I actually focus on women who are going through major life transitions. And so it's been fun, Carrie, to just use all those skills and talents and empower women in particular and others. And so you mentioned I have this podcast called Fearless Chick. Um, Mm -hmm. I ran for office when I was 22. 
uh, you know, that's kind of fearless, right? And so I've done a few things. Uh, and so it's sort of my brand and what I try to inspire other people to do. So whether it's, you know, in their careers or in education or just living the life that they truly want to live, like be fearless about it and make all of your decisions according to the life you really want. So that's what the podcast is. And I'm just loving this work and loving, empowering and sharing um, my skills and talents and experiences with other people. Well, and it does sound like empowerment is really the theme that's run through so much of your work. Uh, and then being able to encourage other people to experiment, to take risks, to follow their yes. passions, um, that that seems like that would be incredibly rewarding, not only for you personally as a coach and a guide, but really for the people that you're touching through your podcast and your and your consulting work. Exactly. And thank you for saying that, because I really, I really do appreciate that. And that's exactly how it feels. It's gratifying and just an incredible opportunity to serve others. Great. Well, again, so glad that we are able to co-host today. Yes. And it's really nice to meet you. You've done some incredible work. So I'm happy to uh, hang out with you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm glad to be back as well. And we have some really interesting stories of the week this week that it would be interesting to see what our different perspectives are on them. Um, the yeah. first is from U.S. News. Uh, calling The title is Trump Calls on Congress to Pass Federal Tax Credit Scholarship. And this was, of course, part of President Trump's State of the Union address. Uh, his major push for education. And I'll just read a bit from the U.S. News article. President Donald Trump pressed members of Congress to pass his administration's number one education priority during his State of the Union address, a controversial tax credit scholarship that would allow states to direct billions of dollars to private and religious schools. Quoting the president here, he says, for too long, countless American children have been trapped in failing government schools. He goes on to say, to rescue these students, 18 states have created school choice in the form of opportunity scholarships. He then says, pass the Education Freedom Scholarships and Opportunity Act because no parent should be forced to send their child to a failing government school. So, of course, you know, my sort of personal take on this is education choice mechanisms are important. They need to be expanded. We need to back to the idea of empowering families that I think this is one method of doing that. And I'm generally very supportive of uh, tax credit scholarship programs, voucher programs, education savings accounts, and other kinds of tools. My one issue, which is where I would oppose the president here, is that I don't feel like it's a federal issue, that I think that the there is no constitutional authority for the federal government to have a role uh, in this, in spreading educational uh, tax credit scholarship programs or other educational choice mechanisms. And it sets a dangerous precedent whenever we embolden the federal government. Remember, there's no mention of the word education in the Constitution, in the U.S. Constitution. So anytime we give more power to the federal government in the, in the way of education, it might serve our purposes, we think, in the short term, if the party in power happens to be aligned with our views. But of course, those winds frequently change. And then now you've given more federal authority uh, the next time some other policy comes around that you might not be so in favor of. Um, so all of that said, I'm, I'm definitely opposed to the federal role of the government, uh, the federal government in education choice and in, in these tax credit scholarship programs, with the exception and Lindsay Burke and others, but Lindsay, especially at the Heritage Foundation, has written about this as well, except in small areas where the federal government does have jurisdiction, for example, military families or young people living on tribal lands or students in the District of Columbia. Those would be areas where there is this sort of federal authority, and then you could make a case that maybe there's some opportunity there. But otherwise, uh, this is not the role of the federal government. What do you think, Alicia? Well, I got a lot of thoughts on this. So you mentioned um, already that you said before that, you know, there's not a precedent for this. And but then you also said that they're already doing this uh, in D.C., right? They already have not a tax, not necessarily the tax credit program, but a voucher program. Right. And so I think that from a my opposition to this is not about the federal role so much mm. as it is just the language, the tone um, of this, uh, the quotes that the the president 
um, made in his address about uh, public education in this country. Uh, for example, you know, millions of kids are trapped in failing government schools. While there is some truth that there are too, way too many kids um, who are in schools that don't work for them, we got to be careful about how we refer to um, our public education system. I think those of us who consider ourselves education reformers or people who are, you know, want to see some sort of disruption to the current system have to be very careful about how we are referring to 90 percent of the kids who are being educated in our in our country. So that was my first problem. Um, And then at the same time saying that this program is going to rescue the student. So you start with this like anti-government sentiment But then you say the same government that's failing them is now going to rescue them by giving them these scholarships. Hmm. And so I'm I'm challenged with the language, with the tone, with how um, some of us in this community um, are approaching how we talk about choice. Um, You know, no one's going to be a bigger advocate than me for parents having options in this country. Um, I am a product of public school choice. I went to, you know, a predominantly white uh, elementary school on a minority to majority program. I went to a performing arts uh, magnet school for middle school and then a performing arts high school and then attended a private historically black college, the one and only Spelman College um, for my undergraduate degree. And so I'm a product of school choice. For me, it's about leveling the playing field. Um, and so I, I think that having these kinds of opportunities for students is important, but we have to be careful about how we use these programs, how we see public, public education in general. And frankly, I want to see this administration have a much more robust agenda uh, in improving public education for the 90 percent of kids who are uh, in our schools every day. And that includes my own 12 uh, year old uh, who's in seventh grade, who's at a school that frankly doesn't work for her. And if I had other options, she would be in a different school. But until then, I got to make sure that the schools that they go to are working. Um, so I got a lot to say right about that. <laughs> I will say one thing that I liked um, based on this article, and I haven't read the legislation myself Um, But it also provides funding for um, students to go to other public schools of their choice, uh, take online classes, um, but also pay for tutoring and after school programs. And so I think it does um, make a good point in terms of let's enrich educational opportunities wherever kids want to go, wherever families want to have opportunities. Let's open up um, that the sea of opportunities for them so that their zip code, you know, their bank account does not determine the quality of education that their children get. Right. So it does seem like they're, the rhetoric around uh, education choice has gotten stronger. And I'd be curious, too, about your thoughts, having been in, a, in education in the inside as a superintendent and running charter schools as well as as a state legislator, do you feel that way too, that it has gotten um, more divisive and stronger over the, say, the last half decade? I do. And I think it's largely driven by politics, right? And I'm not going to use this platform to bash any particular group. You know, I'm trying to get away from bashing anybody. And I think that's the problem in politics right now. But I do believe that School choice in particular has become overly politicized. We don't talk enough about kids and what's best for parents and their children and you know what they know to be best for their own kids. We don't talk about leveling the playing field and equity. You know, we're talking about political donations and, you know, quote unquote, taking money away from schools as if the money somehow belongs to an institution rather than the children that are to be educated. And so it's become frustrating for me. Um, and I'll have to just, I'll just say this, you know, for, for those of us who've been in politics, and in my case, I'm an African-American Democrat in the South. It was very unpopular for me to support school choice of any kind. Mm. Um, and you become ostracized. And so, you know, I am still healing, right, from some of the things that were said Um, I look at some of my colleagues around the country, um, also African-American Democrats, some who are elected, some no longer, um, who were ostracized because we had the courage to stand up for kids and have the nerve to work across the aisle, right, to do things that we thought were right. 
And so we, we, if we're going to do what's best for kids, we got to take the politics out. We got to stop letting, you know, political partisanship get in the way of improving education as a whole and just doing what's best for kids. Really interesting. And I think is an interesting segue to our next story of the week around political partisanship. Um, This is sort of the trouble that I have with this next article, which is from CNBC entitled Teaching Financial Education in Schools Finally Catches On. And I'll read a little bit. It says research shows that kids who learn to manage money when they're young will be able to better handle their finances as adults. Yet up until recently, only 17 states required high school students to take a class in personal finance. Now, personally, I think, oh, isn't that great? We're you know, encouraging young people to have a sense of you know, real financial responsibility and understand kind of practical applications mm-hmm. of mathematics and all of this and personal finance, which is, is hard to argue with. And I completely agree with that. I think my issue with this is that, um, for example, the article says, 45 states now include personal finance education in their curriculum standards. Uh, 37 states require those standards to be implemented by local school districts. I always have the issue of of kind of forced curriculum or requirements. I think, you know, who's deciding and whose curriculum? And and again, it gets back to the larger point around education choice, that if if this is where most families, most children have to be educated and families don't have the ability uh, to to be empowered around curriculum choices or the kinds of educational approaches that their young people are exposed to, then I worry about you know these kind of state mandated curriculum uh, expectations. So it goes beyond personal finance to other areas as well. But personal finance in particular is something you care a lot about uh, in some of yes. the work that you do. And I'd love to hear your take on this article. Yeah, I got very passionate again when I saw this one um, because so if you look at, you know, just the research, um, there are a bunch of folks that have come out. I think um, CNN had an article a couple years ago that 40 percent of Americans can't cover a four hundred dollar emergency expense. Mm -hmm. So just like think about that for a minute. Four hundred dollars. Um, and and that's a, a large number of people in this country who something's happening with their finances. Yes, there's, you know, an, an issue in terms of income and, you know, poverty and all those things. Very important. But there's also something about how people are managing their money. And I completely agree with you, uh, certainly from an as an educator, that I don't want the state coming in telling me every single thing that needs to be taught in terms of curriculum. Um, yes, let's state this. Let's set the standards, but not all the curriculum. But I think this is one that I might be a little bit, uh, as I say, talking out of both sides of your neck, <laughs> because this is one of those topics that our young people are leaving our schools without any knowledge of how to, you know, manage a the proverbial checkbook because we don't really have checkbooks much anymore. But how do you, you know, manage your savings and checking account? And how do you make sure when you get to college, you're not getting all the credit cards that are being offered so you can get that cute T-shirt? So somewhere they need to learn this. And if their families are like mine, where did I learn financial management? In college. And so by that time, if I had not just been, I guess, naturally smart or aware, you know, I could have been in a lot of trouble had I not learned in college what to do. You know, now I'm doing great because of that education. So I just think that I'm glad to see that states are moving in this direction. Georgia is one of those states that we require financial literacy uh, prior to graduation. My daughter um, is a seventh grader. She's 12. We had this conversation the other day as I'm trying to keep her you know, motivated about school. She's, it's not her favorite thing. She's not her mama. And I'm learning that. But she said to me, you know, I want to learn about how to balance a checkbook and, you know, how to use a credit card and how to pay a mortgage, which I was like, how do you know about paying a mortgage? I mean, she hears me talk about it. But I think it's important when kids themselves are saying, hey, I want to learn more about how to live in real life than some of the things that I'm learning that I may not use in 20 years. And so we want our kids to have a, a well-rounded education, but I also think even they are saying, and I, I believe that states are moving in the right direction, let's teach financial literacy. Um, one of the projects that I work on too, I also do some education consulting, um, is I help to start a nonprofit for a friend focused on um, disrupting generational poverty. 
And that is part of the work is teaching financial literacy to young people so that they can start developing habits now. They can make good decisions now in middle school, high school and college so that that when they are right in their own households, they've got the four hundred dollars to cover an emergency. Great. Yeah, I think we can definitely agree that financial literacy is an important skill and something that we should be encouraging young people to develop. I think, the, again, the only thing I would uh, push back against is the coercion piece of it. Um, and are there ways that we can encourage exposure, like you said, talking to your daughter about mortgages and other things? Are there ways to do this uh, where without that kind of uh, regulation and, and state coercion? So, yeah, and you raise a good point. I, I get it, right? Like, yeah. what is the role of the government? What should we, you know, require in schools? And it could take us down a very slippery slope. And who decides? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Well, coming up after the break, we are very excited to talk with Julie Young from ASU Prep Digital. Welcome back to the Learning Curve podcast. Really excited, Alicia, about our guest today, Julie Young, who's really been such a pioneer in the online learning world. Literally. And <laughs> really, and has uh, has been in this at this for over three decades. Um, Julie is the Deputy Vice President of Education Outreach and Student Services for Arizona State University and the CEO of ASU Prep Digital High School. She is the leading voice for revolutionizing K-12 online education on the global stage as the founding president and CEO of Florida Virtual School. Young and her team grew the Florida Virtual School into a diversified worldwide organization, creatively serving over 2 million students in 50 states and 68 countries worldwide, Julie graduated with a master's in education from the University of South Florida, following her undergraduate work at the University of Kentucky. And our listeners can find her at uh, www.asuprepdigital.org. So really so glad you're here, Julie. Thank you so so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Julie, maybe you can give us a broad picture of the evolution of online schooling over the three decades that you've been involved with it. Currently, nationally, we have about 2.7 million K-12 students uh, and having an online schooling experience in 2019. That's up from about one and a half million or an 80 percent increase since 2009 what do you see are, as some of the trends, especially in terms of which states are leading the way and which states may be lagging behind? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a timely question as uh, we're getting ready for the Digital Learning uh, Coalition Conference second year. And they will be producing a report, releasing a report during that conference at the end of the month, which kind of details the industry kind of similar to the old keeping pace report, if you recall that report in the past. But when you look at the data, you know, some of the uh, the schools and the states that have always been leaders still are. So for example, Florida still has the most course enrollments of any state in the country, um, followed by North Carolina, which is, you know, sig- significantly behind, but sig- uh, Florida, but significantly, significantly ahead of the pack with the rest of the country. Um, and then you look at Alabama, they've always been a strong leader and uh, uh, Michigan has been a strong leader, South Carolina, even uh, Arkansas and Colorado. So those are some of the states that come to mind that have really worked hard to establish policies and provide latitude for students who um, want to take one course, two course, uh, two courses, and supplement their learning. And um, it, it's been really rather fun to watch that grow over the last 25 years, I guess it's been 24 years that I started in this in this gig. Uh, but then then you also look at the full time online schools, the fully online schools and how those have grown and and changed over the years. So there's 
32 states at this point in time that have statewide fully online schools. So a significant portion, obviously the majority of the country, um, you see, not surprisingly, based on, I think, Florida's leadership early on, that the southeastern states still are incredibly strong. Um, as you've looked at heat maps over the years, the southeastern states have been incredibly strong in online learning. But then you also see California, which has uh, a lot of opportunity, Pennsylvania still having a lot of opportunity and was obviously the first state to get involved in this work. So I, I think in terms of the leaders, those have been pretty steady. Um, then you see a few anomalies. Uh, Kentucky, as an example, did have a statewide program years ago, but no longer does. Same thing with Mississippi. They did have a statewide program for fully online, I should say, um, but no longer do. So those are some of the trends that I've just kind of identified lately. If I can so, just do a quick follow on for you, Julie, too. It was interesting. I was um, reading uh, in the Paul Peterson's classic book, Saving Schools from 2010, where he devotes a whole section to talking about your role with the Florida Virtual School and, and leading kind of the online learning uh, revolution. And I was struck at one point where you talked about uh, that you thought that this was, or a lot the people around you thought that this was going to be a fad. Uh, and then here you, here we are, you know, where this is clearly here to stay in a major part of the educational landscape. And I just thought that was such an interesting uh, point. And curious if you can add anything to that and then have Alicia chime in too. Well, you know, back in the day, back in 1996, when this all started, no one thought there was any real need for this. We didn't have the, 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 as many of the gaps that we have now in terms of teacher shortages. There wasn't as much emphasis. Obviously, the state testing was not at the level it is now. So therefore, those variances were not as publicized or as obvious. When we started down this path of virtual education back then, was really, you know, people were kind of like, why don't why do we need this? I really I'm good. And I think what was instrumental certainly in Florida was when Governor Bush identified that we had, I think it was 17 districts at the time that did not offer any advanced placement or honors courses for their students. And so he identified the inequity of learning as an opportunity for the Florida Virtual School to step in and to give all students in the state of Florida the opportunity for a high quality teacher and a high quality education experience and high quality courses. And I think that, you know, if you look at, you know, Clayton Christensen, rest his soul, and Michael Horn's work on, on you know, innovative disruptions, they always come out of some type of a, a need or a gap and when that need was identified and that gap was recognized, then I think people kind of rallied around, you know, the, uh, online learning as an opportunity to fill that one gap. And then it became, you know, well, we only need it if we have a gap. And then what we soon learned, because we all, you know, have our perspective about who this is good for and who needs it and who doesn't. And because that's what we do as educators, we're really good at sorting and um, we think we know what's best. And what we learned through trial and error and the opportunity for choice was that students of all kinds found some type of a, a positive learning opportunity through virtual learning and online learning. And it was different for all of them and some some students loved it for the flexibility others loved it because they were behind and they were not in a peer you know class with peers um, where they were the one that was behind or struggling same for advanced students who you know didn't want to stick out like a sore thumb thumb because it wasn't cool to be smart um, for the students with high anxiety the students with uh, attention deficit challenges autism and i and i think for me and if I sound a little passionate, <laughs> for me, it was just so wonderful to see this learning opportunity reach so many students who were not being reached or who thought they weren't learners or school was not a happy place for them. And, 
you know, all of a sudden they had an opportunity to be a learner and to feel successful as, as opposed to being, you know, compared to the student to the left and the student to the right. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I fundamentally believe that, um, it was the parents who saw this working for their students and they became the voice for choice, certainly in the state of Florida to say, you know, I I want this for my child. And, um, and then you just saw, you know, that this thing that was supposed to be a gap filler or this thing that was never going to make it, you know, all of a sudden became incredibly relevant. Absolutely. And changing lives. This is Alicia Cromartie. Julie, it is wonderful to um, talk to you. Uh, you are a legend and a pioneer, um, as Carrie mentioned. And you, I've, I'm sure we've met at some conference or something. Um, I have a different last name now, so you may not remember. But I want to brag about a couple of things, and then I have a question for you, if I may. Uh, sure. First of all, I'm born and raised in Florida, so it is yeah. wonderful to <laughs> uh, reconnect with the now former, both of us Florida, former Floridians, excuse me. I'm um, still there. I commute. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> um, and educated there as well. And my the other thing I want to brag about, when you talk about where virtual learning is working well, you named a number of Southeastern states, which makes me proud because Carrie, as you well know, the South is not lauded often, right, for doing things well in public education. So I'm proud that we have been doing this well. And Julie, I have no doubt that it's probably because of the proximity to Florida, right, and our ability to kind of lean on you and others in Florida who've been doing this well. So thank you, first of all, for all that you've done. Um, and I think you you hit the nail on the head when you talked about just the opportunities that have been provided for literally millions of families across this country um, and now around the world because these opportunities are now available. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and welcome to the show. (laughs) So here's my question. Um, You talked about, um, you know, the opportunities that are available um, and just the growth of virtual education in general. And so I want to ask you about um, virtual charters. Um, when I look at around the country and even in Georgia where I am now, and I also should also brag and add that I have served in the legislature for 12 years here in Georgia uh, and was really one of the champions of virtual education, helped pass our first uh, virtual education law. Um, so I'm proud of what we've done in Georgia as well. Thank you. Um, but my question is about like when we talk about virtual charters, it appears to me, whether it's in Georgia and lots of other places, that charters are either being revoked or not even being approved for virtual charters um, around the country. And so I wonder if you will speak to that, um, if you've got some research that speaks to the why. And I, I specifically want to dig a little deeper and, and ask you about different populations that are served well or not by virtual education. And perhaps that may, may be one of the reasons why some of the schools are not uh, living as long as we'd want them to. Um, you know, the virtual charter industry is complicated. Um, I think, you know, I, I, it's kind of like, um, you know, we have our public schools, we have our private schools, we have our charter schools, we have our virtual schools, we have our virtual charter schools. And within all of those categories, we have our leaders and our laggers. We have our our strong programs, um, you know, um, with efficacy and 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 rigor. And we have our schools that um, we all wonder why they're still open and you know feel bad for the students who attend. Quite frankly, so you know all those different. I'm always very cautious about the fact that in every category of schooling. Um, there are leaders and there are laggers and there are good actors and there are bad actors. And, you know, I think that um, having had an opportunity to work in the public school system that to create a statewide public school district and now work um, at ASU um, as a public university where the, the revenue is not the target uh, student performance and student learning is, and you know you you work through the funding challenges, and there certainly are funding challenges 
um, in all those scenarios as well. And SCALE certainly has helped tremendously in the state of Florida as we work through our funding challenges. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, public schools are not designed to make a profit. And so if you look at you know, virtual charters, I think that we just have to be mindful of the fact that they are a business and that in order for them to, you know, continue to operate, that, you know, there has to be, there has to be a profit in order to, to, continue, to continue to move forward. With that said, you know, I think it's dangerous to lump, um, to lump the, you know, all, all of one together as if because they are an X, they are all bad, or because they're a Y, they are all good. And, you know, so so I also think that back in, I don't know, 2008, 9, 10, that time, um, you know, there was a there was quite a growth in the virtual charter business. And there was a focus in many states on some of our lowest performing students and some of our um, students with learning differences. And, you know, a speculation that the focus on those students was because the funding for those students was higher than for um, students that um, were in the main. And, you know, so, so to your point about what student populations do better, we have this conversation all the time internally, you know, not, not about the population, but about the student. Um, there are students who are struggling students that do incredibly well in an online learning environment where they no longer have um, peer pressure and they have a teacher that is just devoted to them, that they can ask as many questions in private, get as much attention as they possibly can, um, et cetera. And, and, and we have, you know, that's been one of the major joys of my career is to, to watch those kinds of um, those, those students blossom. Yeah. With, with that said, I also think that, our, that in some of our situations, the the rigidity of some of our virtual charters has inhibited that the 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 ability to personalize in the in the greatest manner you know still being tied to a calendar still being tied to seat time and minutes um i i i remember i'm trying to remember remember believe it was in florida when we first started working with connections academy to launch our elementary program the way that the, the law was designed because it was still seat time for that particular program, even if a student who, let's say, was in third grade completed their third grade curriculum by February, we could not advance them to fourth grade. We had to continue keeping them in third grade, um, submitting their minutes in order for us to continue to get funded. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of leads you to, to all the, the, the questions around policy. It does. Um, and if I could just follow up with that, I'm, I want to go even deeper when we talk about um, sort of the the rigid guidelines, policies, laws that are in place. Do you think that, generally speaking, virtual schools ought to have a different accountability system, um, a different set of standards because of because of how uh, the education is delivered and maybe even who the schools are serving? And, and let me let me give you a little bit of background and why sure. I'm asking that. There are a couple of schools uh, in different parts of the country that I know, as an example, are serving um, students who have dropped out um, or who are doing sort of credit recovery type programs um, who may need a longer time to graduate, as an example. Mm-hmm. But if you are holding those schools to the same standard as the traditional high school across the street, you're never going to meet those accountability standards. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes we miss the opportunity to educate Mm -hmm. um, that group of kids in certain states because the laws just won't allow those schools to exist. And I'm not, you know, making an argument for those virtual schools that are not um, educating students well and are not, you know, they don't have those kinds of challenges and are just not, you know, uh, meeting the mark. I'm really talking about those schools who are you know, serving students who are not within the traditional system and need a different kind of delivery system. So I'm completely with you. Um, and obviously from the work that I've done, you know, anytime, any pace is, is 
is all, you know, is, is what I want for every, every student. And, and, and I think that, again, I go back to the, the restrictions that we, we place on all schools. And if indeed, and, and we think about these arbitrary things that we call elementary school, middle school, high school, college, where someone decided that, you know, this one should be six grades and this one should be three grades and this one should be four and without these four you can't advance to these and you know that's what we're trying to do here at ASU Prep Digital and ASU Prep is allowing our students to start college or advance their studies whenever they're ready as opposed to after they've finished grades nine through twelve and maybe they're advanced in math but they're not in English. Well, let's let them go. And so we're really encouraging our students to start college in high school and creating a pathway for them to do so. Um, with that said, to your point, it works the other way around. So if we, if we were able to really think about seat time, not as our monitor, but learning as our monitor and the idea that different students learn at different paces. And if we can personalize the education to those students and get and, and, and give them more time. And so it takes one child, one student, one young adult, you know, five or six years. Why is it that we're OK with that in college, but we're not right. in school? I, I, that that always strikes me as like, well, we know why. Right. Because we yeah. like the money. Right. That comes with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so so we only have X amount of you know dollars, obviously, for high school per student. And when those dollars run out, then the schools obviously have to, you know, absorb those costs. So schools are going to do everything they can to make sure students graduate, quote unquote, on time. So so I am a, a full believer that if we're really focusing on educating all children, all citizens, that we have to have um, different types of programs that are conducive to each type of learner available for all of them. And uh, we speak out of both sides of our mouth sometimes. I agree. Ju yeah. So Julie, I wonder if it might be helpful if we go deeper into the specific example of um, ASU Prep Digital uh, and your involvement there. I, the, I was perusing the website. It seems like you're doing such amazing work. Um, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about this school. It is free to attend for students in Arizona and is still relatively affordable for out-of-state students if they want to pay private tuition. There's college credit options. It just seems like such an incredible place. And I wonder if you could um, paint a picture of what it's like at AS uprepdigital.org. Sure, absolutely. Um, so ASU is a unique place. If you have never met or had the opportunity to um, meet or to meet or hear our, our president, President Crow speak, uh, you've missed something. So that's something you can aspire to. But um, the ASU charter calls for us to measure ourselves and our success, not by whom we exclude, but by whom we include and how they succeed. And as a Research One university, there is a, a huge commitment to uh, serving the communities and, and that, you know, the raising um, the economic, social, cultural, and overall health of all the communities we serve, which we see really as the world. So ASU Prep Digital really came about um, as an underpinning of ASU Prep Academy, which is a network of charter schools that ASU authorized 11 years ago. And so we are the one digital school that kind of underpins all of our brick and mortar, what we call our immersion school sites. And we exist basically for two reasons, to create new educational models of success and to raise the, uh, the, the level of educational attainment for all students that we serve. And What's really fascinating about the work is that, you know, ASU did not get into the charter business to get into the charter business. Um, there are a lot of charter schools in the state of Arizona, but we did get into the charter business to get into the K-12 business because the, uh, the idea was we wanted to uh, prove that you could create a continuum of learning from K through life or pre-K through life. And so... Um, you know, that, that's one of the reasons we exist is to um, provide an opportunity for a student to come to ASU Prep Digital and advance their learning 
uh, not based on how old they are, not based on their grade, not based on where they live, but based on their academic um, uh, achievement and aspirations. And so the innovation, the real innovation with ASU Prep Digital as it differentiates from other virtual schools in the space is the deep integration and being part of ASU um, and deeply embedded in ASU and having the availability of all the assets that um, Arizona State University has to bear uh, for our students. And just as a follow-up to that, too, you have some really great details on the website, but I wonder if you can share more for our listeners. There's this sense often when we think about online learning that kids are in front of a computer screen all day and they're not interacting with others and it's really static. And uh, and you, you definitely make the case through the um, frequently asked questions and some of the other materials and videos that you have on the website. But I wonder if you can maybe dispel that myth of what online learning really is. Yeah. So, you know, our belief is that um, you can't you, you can't do you shouldn't do online learning all behind a computer. And that, you know, although we are high tech, we are also very high touch. And so we're very deliberate in the design of the instructional methodologies as well as the courses that, you know, we we push students away from the computer for portions of the time. We also are very committed to, to students interacting and learning to collaborate and communicate. You know, we learned early on there would be students and it was actually frustration early on for teachers because um, kids wanted to be in online learning because they didn't want to be social. There were some kids, not all um, by any means or matter, but some kids, you know, wanted the isolation. Um, school and and community wasn't a comfortable place for them. But as we all know that if we graduate our students without the ability to communicate, talk to adults, collaborate, um, and work, uh, you know, across geographies, then they will not be prepared for the world of work. So um, that was a constant, you know, that was a constant tension. So that is built into the program. Uh, we also do provide opportunities for students to meet and greet and come together for social events um, and come together like they come to graduation. We had a student come from New York City with her, her whole family last year um, to walk with um, our entire academy. And so we, we have kids that. that have gotten together on the weekend with a learning success coach and go to the zoo. Um, our kids got together. We have a, you know, a student government and they got together and they came to us a, a few months ago and said, we want to have a prom. And so we are having a prom. <laughs> wow. And um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, the, still right now, because we're so new, the majority of our full-time students are from Arizona. Um, but we do have students in uh, 40 states. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how many actually come. Wow, that sounds so fun. I want to go. Yeah, and you know, and I, I want to add, <laughs> I, I add. We should we should invite you. I also want to add. You know, I also think that I'm not a big credit recovery fan, um, and that's not news to anyone who's listening. Um, at Florida Virtual School, it, they pounded on me. They being my staff, my my global staff, who was getting requests for credit recovery. I think they pounded on me for five years, and we finally succumbed to creating. Um, what we felt like were strong credit recovery courses. But credit recovery, just by the name itself, does not imply learning. And um, what we often do, not always, but what we sometimes do, especially when we have the availability of technology, is we take those students who need um, the love and the touch of a teacher the most, and we put them in a, a room with a computer and say, go make up your credit. And so I, I know I'm being extreme for the purpose of illustration, but, um, you know, I, I don't see that as, you know, the, the quality online learning that we really want our students to engage with um, that is going to prepare them for, you know, college and career and for life. Julie, we, we, we probably have um, time maybe for one more question. Alicia, do you have anything? I do. I have like yeah. 12, but I'm going to go with my uh, last one. <laughs> I mean, because Julie, you just raised a really important point um, about 
the quality, right? We all we all strive for high quality education wherever a child uh, is is being educated. Um, so that's a whole different discussion in terms of credit recovery and and what quality looks like, and trying to make sure that they graduate from high school and can go on to other opportunities when perhaps the school that they would have been going to may not have been as loving and, and accepting as we would want. Um, but I want to ask a question about higher education. So obviously we we're in a crisis, right? When it comes to student loan debt um, and just the enormous cost of higher education in this country. And so I'm wondering if you think um, digital learning, virtual learning can help contain those growing costs in higher education. What are your thoughts about that? So I kind of view it the same way I viewed um, K-12 education with the advent of online and virtual learning is it's not an either or, in my opinion, it's an and. And when I looked at what we were doing in Florida and what we're doing now, um, I would never, and and I never advocated for it, if a you know a parent called a student called and they were like I'm going to leave my school because of X Y Z reason, you know we would always dissect that very carefully with the family and with the student to to really look at the why, and um, so I always saw it as as especially to people who are threatened by the whole concept is is like you know it's it's another feather in our cap it's another tool we can use to bring a higher percentage of students to a level of learning so you know there's nothing that's one size fits all so whether you are you know in a in a brick and mortar school or a college where you know it works for 70% and the other 30 we just consider you know lost leaders uh, or the same vice versa with virtual learning it's an opportunity for students of all ages to have different modalities of learning for uh, different subject areas or different disciplines of which they might be more successful depending on the medium of which they learn. Now, with all that said, I think that, you know, think about the the cost just of um, uh, the living expenses for students who are going to college and or the distance of students in some of our rural areas who who want to avail themselves to college and the closest community college is an hour and a half away uh, or the you know the student has you know uh, um, maybe they have a bright future scholarship in the state of Florida but it's only for their tuition so the idea that they could go to the college of their choice uh, from the comforts of their parents' home or their own home while they, while they are wor- working adult and not incur the cost of, you know, on-campus living or being or out-of-state tuition, I think is huge when we think about containing costs. Um, I also think the fact that digital learning enables you to accelerate if indeed you are so inclined um, to shorten time and cost to degree as well. So I think there's all kind, I think there's so much to be unpacked there as to how um, digital learning can help contain the cost of higher education or certainly provide uh, a significant valued option for students who don't have the means. Absolutely. And I hope we grow and go in that area as a country so that more students have that opportunity. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Um, CEO of ASU Prep Digital High School, Julie Young, thank you again. How can our, our listeners find you and follow you? Well, they can certainly uh, find me at asuprepdigital.com dot, uh, and they can find me at julie.young.1 at asu.edu. Wonderful. Thanks again for being on The Learning Curve. Yes. Thank you all very much for the opportunity to be with you today. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Welcome back to the Learning Curve podcast for the commentary and tweet of the week. So this week's commentary, Alicia, is an article, an op-ed by Fred Hess at Education Next, and he is reviewing Uh, Diane Ravitch's new book, Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Schools. 
And it's really interesting. I I was uh, at graduate school in education policy at Harvard at the turn of the millennium when before Diane Ravitch sort of switched when she, um, you know, sort of was initially a reformer focused on uh, pushing for more standards and more accountability and 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 then kind of switch to be away from that that focus and be much more uh, fighting what she calls the resistance or being the resistance and fighting against what she calls these other um, you know privatizers and so it was interesting to read Fred Hess's review of this uh, of this book. And he says it's this, this is, he starts off by saying it's the third installment of her quote, I was such a fool trilogy. (laughs) Says Ravitch for decades was a prominent advocate for testing school choice and reform had a conversion experience in the mid aughts and emerged as an (laughs) ardent leader of what she terms here, the resistance bent on defending public education from the so-called privatizers and philanthropists who fund them. So I'd be curious about your thoughts uh, either on uh, Fred Hess's review of Ravitch's book or of your take on Ravitch's uh, book. Well, haven't read it. Um, I'm a little bit familiar with Diane Ravitz, right? Aren't we all? We've heard of her, her work. Um, And I will tell you also that I'm a big fan of Rick Hess. Um, You know, I think he is, I think he, he's a, he's a very uh, colorful character, right? That's how he writes when you hear him speak it the same way. Um, He's very entertaining. And I think this article uh, does a good job of, you know, depicting who he is. But I think he makes some very good points, right? That once again, it's, you know, this, the sky is falling, you know, all of these conspiracies, uh, lists upon lists um, that, that she mentions in the book. When are we going to stop this fear mongering? When are we going to stop um, making people believe in all of these conspiracies that folks like myself and you and others are just in this because we just want to destroy the public education system. When it's it's the it's for me, I can only speak for myself. It's the last thing I'd want to do. And so I appreciate him uh, once again, giving us this colorful review uh, about her book and just poking a little fun and just reminding us all that not everything is a conspiracy. Like, let's let's talk about some of the real issues that need to be addressed in education. Um, he, he calls it a lost opportunity. And I think once again, with all of the influence and power that she has, instead of, you know, creating a conversation where we can figure out ways to work together, find solutions, it's more of the same. And I don't think that's helping us in this current climate. Right. And similar to our discussion earlier on the podcast, again, around that kind of strong rhetoric, the politicization of school choice, it hides the real issues and the real work to be done in terms of coming to some compromises and uh, collaboration in these areas. Exactly. So, Alicia, what do you have for the tweet of the week? Well, um, I found a Nice tweet about Black History Month. And so it was from CBS News and it was actually from February 4th, which was the 107th birthday of civil rights activist Rosa Parks Um, and says she had a pivotal role in the history of the civil rights movement after she was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a public bus for a white man. And so I picked this for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I grew up in the NAACP, was a youth council president and all that good stuff. Um, and Rosa Parks at the time was secretary of her local branch. Um, and this was a planned um, effort on behalf of the branch. And a lot of people think, you know, just one day she was tired and just didn't feel like getting up. And so I think it's important to highlight um, the courage of people like Rosa Parks um, as a part of American history and black history that, you know, it takes a lot of courage to face, you know, racism, um, sexism, all of the isms, right? Uh, look them down the eye and stand up for what's right. And I also wanted to take this moment uh, to acknowledge some of the other Rosa Parks, if you will, um, in the education space. Um, folks like Polly Williams, um, who was one of the first, you know, advocates for uh, school choice. For my friend Howard Fuller, everybody knows mm-hmm. how Howard, uh, Virginia Walton, there are a bunch of people 
um, who've been around for decades fighting and even having harder fights than I have had, um, which is kind of unimaginable, right? But when these things were extremely unpopular and they were the only one in the room. So I just want to give a shout out, right? And Black History Month celebration to um, all of the Rosa Parks um, of the education movement, of civil rights movement, and just people in general um, who have the courage to stand up and do what's right, even when it's unpopular, even when it means being ostracized. Mm, I love that, right? Acknowledging all those other Rosa Parks and back to kind of your overall goal of of empowering people, encouraging people to be bold and take risks and be true to themselves. Yes. Uh, just and being a, a fearless, right? And being fearless. There you go. Yes. Uh, Alicia, it has been so great to co-host with you this week. Yes, Carrie. Thank you. And have that nice discussion with Julie Young. Uh, next time on the Learning Curve podcast next week will be my colleague at the Cato Institute, uh, Neil McCluskey, director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. So stay tuned for next week's podcast. Mm-hmm.